You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 34. And then, if you uh, have mad Bible skills, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and then like keep a finger in both of those or ribbon or whatever you have. Um, that's what ribbons are for, by the way, if you have them on your Bible. Um, okay, uh, Exodus 34 and Ephesians 2. Today, what I want to do is I want to look at one of the most beautiful and captivating attributes of God as it relates to us, as we've been in a series on the attributes of God, the characteristics of God, who is God? That, that, that sort of thing. That, that sort of we've been calling this series "Discovering God," and and so today we're looking at God's mercy and God's grace, and not simply God's mercy and God's grace, but the fact that God is mercy and that God is grace. And because there is a mistaken, invalid notion that justice and judgment characterize the God of the Old Testament, and mercy and grace belong to the God of the New Testament. I want to start with Exodus 34 to show you that mercy and grace belong to all of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're going to start in the Old in Exodus and, uh, and then get on to, to show the beauty of this as it's portrayed in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. So Exodus 34, let me start in verse 5. Verse 5, um, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there. Now there's so much backstory that I don't really have time to share. Just trust me, God's in a cloud. He's coming down. Moses is there. Everybody cool with that? Good. Um, now, if you remember, uh, when, even if you've seen that, like, Prince of Egypt cartoon thing, uh, animated um, feature film, uh, even in, in that, or if you've seen the movie Ten Commandments or whatever, or you've actually read the Bible, um, whatever, you, you, you've come across this sort of um, saying where, or this, this, this thing where Moses asked God, who are you? What, what's your name? Right? And God said, I am. But then later on, as Moses gets to know God, God kind of releases his name to him. Uh, I'm this, I'm that, and this. So at Ten Commandments, he does this. Again, he does it in chapter 34. He says this. The Lord descended with the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So he's proclaiming to Moses what his name is. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh. So he's saying, um, this is who I am. He repeats it, just so you don't miss it. A God merciful and gracious. The Lord, the Lord, merciful, full of mercy, full of grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's, on children, children's children, to the third and fourth generation. God will not clear the guilty, Unless something happens. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. I'm going to read to verse 10. Paul writing, And you, let's take this personally, church, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is imagery of Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we 
all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Let's pray. God, we thank you. I thank you for your powerful and majestic and beautiful, compelling word. And I pray that it would capture our hearts this morning. I ask, God, that your grace would be poured out on this church, on this gathering right now. If those in this building that sense and feel as if there's no way that God can give me his grace, I'm I'm not worthy of his grace. I'm not worth it. Um, I pray that you would, by your loving kindness, show your grace to them. Show the measure of your grace and the link that you went to show them grace. I pray for those in here that feel like, well, I don't really need the grace of God. I'm kind of okay. I pray that you would show show them their need for grace. Their absolute need for grace. As Paul writes, we're all dead. And we need a resurrection. Bring that today by the power of your word. And I pray for the city I pray for San Francisco that the mercy of God and the grace of God be poured out upon the city. I pray as people openly reject you and people through religion reject you, thinking they can do all these good things and still be okay. I pray, God, that you would pour out your mercy. Show your grace to the city. I pray that you would show individual souls how much you love them and the link that you've gone to redeem us. In Jesus' name, amen. The mercy and the grace of God assume something. I think we all like the idea of a God who's merciful. We all like the idea of a God who's gracious. When we hear that, and I say that as a pastor to this church, hey, did you know that God is merciful that God is gracious, that God has mercy and God has grace. You're like, well, yeah, if I had a God, I would want my God to be that way. Like, of course God's merciful and gracious. I can get along with that. I'm okay with that. When we talked about jealousy and justice, those are a little bit more difficult. God is wrath. Uh, that's a little sketchy. But gracious, merciful, okay, all of us can get behind that. But the mercy and the grace of God presuppose that you need mercy and that you need grace. It has built into this characteristic the fact that you actually need it. Like, yes, I, I like a merciful God, and I like a gracious God, but what that says is that, oh, you actually need mercy, and you actually need grace. And you not, and not just need it like a, a thirsty man needs water, or a sick woman needs medicine. You need the mercy and the grace of God like a dead corpse needs a resurrection. That's what Paul says. He says, you're um, he said, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. You're dead. You're not just sick 
You can't just use, hey, I just need a little God bump today. Like, I'm good, but man, if God can give me like a little grace bump to get me over this like weekend, I would really appreciate that. He's like, no, you're, you're dead. And not if you've seen Princess Bride, not very nearly dead, okay? If you haven't, what's wrong with you? You should see this movie. But really dead. You're dead in your trespasses. You could do nothing to wake yourself up, nothing at all. This is what Paul says. The mercy and the grace of God assume you and I are in a debt that we cannot pay, that we're in a prison that we cannot get out of, and we're under a power that we cannot break. It assumes we need the mercy of God to relieve punishment, and it assumes we need the grace of God to produce salvation. So before, that, before we go along saying, oh yeah, yeah, I, I like this attribute, think about it. Think about what you're saying. For a lot of us, this assumption is a bit far-fetched. For a lot of us, this assumption that we need grace is, is, is lost on us. I mean, do you really feel as if you are that bad and in such great need of mercy? Did you wake up this morning going, oh my gosh, I need the mercy of God? Are you so convinced of your depravity that you cry out for the grace of God? See, most of us, if we were honest, I think, I think we think we're okay. Most of us, we think, I, I can manage. I'm educated. I have a job. I know, I know, I know how to use muni in the city. Like, I'm... I'm, I can manage. I mean, I could use a little help with relationships. I could use a little help with my control issues. I could use a little help with my OCD. But other than that, I think I can manage. That's what a lot of us think. We're, we're fine. And if God, um, we, have, we, have this, we have a life. And if God can just be added to it, oh, it would take it to a, a different level. Like I have a, I have, I have a job, all this, I have all the thing I, everything I need. If I just had a little God sprinkled in there, Dude, it would just add, it would just be amazing. My life would just be complete. Most of us think that we're okay. I mean, we might have the occasional slip up. We might drink too much one night or relax our sexual boundaries another night. We might take a lie to the point of hurting someone or display that hatred towards someone different from us, and we, we hate that we do that. But, but what we know about that, when we fall in, when we slip up when we sin like that when we go oh yeah yeah i did relax my boundaries there i i did promise i'd have a work-life balance there and that, that kind of got thrown out the window i i did do that I, I know i get but but what we say to ourselves is this but but deep down i'm a good person it's all deep down i'm good yes i did do that i did do that but deep, i know me deep down i'm a good person there was a popular self-help book in the 70s called i'm okay you're okay and um, my wife's dad had this book on a shelf when my, Ashley was a, a kid, and on the spine, the words were all scrunched together, so she thought the book, book was Amokiroke. She's like, Dad, what is Amokiroke? He's like, no, it's, it's a book. It's called I'm Okay, You're Okay, and it's like never left her mind. And, and this sort of, even this title kind of conveys this idea that, hey, you know what, I'm really okay, and you are really okay. And if we just all did what we think we should do, we'd all get along, everything would be fine, I'm okay, you're okay. And this is kind of how we go through life. And we wonder why the mercy of God doesn't send us to the moon with joy. And why the grace of God hasn't become that power in our lives to bring about real change. When I say God is merciful, it doesn't send us to the moon with joy going, oh my gosh, God is merciful on me. Because you know what we think? We're like, oh yeah, well, I'm okay. I can use a little mercy here. When I say the grace of God, you're like, well, yeah, grace, yeah. I'm, I, kinda, I was born a Christian. 
I hear that a lot. It's like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I was born a Christian. I'm like, oh, that's not really theologically correct. <laughs> you weren't born a Christian. But this is what we think. Well, I've been okay my whole life. You know, God's been there. This is not how Paul writes it. He says that you, are de- you and I are dead. And we wonder why, and this is why the, the mercy and the grace of God doesn't warm our souls and explode in our hearts with the power to deal with our real temptations and fears and then gloriously lead, us, gloriously lead us into worship. The reason why it doesn't do all these things is because when we read something like Ephesians chapter 2, we, we think this. Okay, the Bible, Paul the Apostle is a little dramatic, drama queen, a little bit. We're not that bad. I mean, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're like satanic and evil, and we're not that bad. And then he says we're like seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and we got riches. We're not, it's not that good. It's like somewhere in the middle. And we read Ephesians 2, and we kind of, we simmer it down a little bit. We're like, hey, everybody calm down, Paul. Calm down. We're not that bad, and God's not that good. But indeed, we are that bad, and God is that good. And that's what I want to show us today. This is how I want to go through our passage and this attribute, the sinfulness of sin, the extravagance of mercy, the scandal of grace, and the salvation of God. You're like, well, wait, four points? You can't do four. It's a super sermon today, okay? So you get four points. First, the sinfulness of sin. Christianity has this reputation for just beating people up. Like Christianity says, like, you're horrible, you're wicked, you're depraved, yada, yada, yada. It just has this reputation for doing that. What we have to first realize is that the Bible does not deny the value of creation, nor does it deny the value of of humanity created in the image of God. The Bible actually starts like this. The world is good. Nature is good. Humanity is good. Life is good. Food is good. Nudity is good. And food and nudity were somehow good together. I don't know how that worked. Genesis 1 and 2, everyone, I'm just saying. I'm a bit of a germaphobe. I don't see how that worked, but God somehow said that worked. Basically, Genesis 1 and 2, it's all good. It was very good. So Paul is not saying here that all human beings are worthless, and he is not saying that all human beings are as bad as they can be. That's not the point of what's going on in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is saying that something went wrong. Something went horribly wrong. So what went wrong in Ephesians 2? He says this, trespasses and sin. That's what went wrong. You were dead because of trespass and sin. People, other people have, have described it like this. Some have called it rebellion and missing the mark. Let me try to explain to you what these, these terms mean. First, rebellion, trespasses, is, is basically when we give the finger to God. When we say, God, we have no need for you. Whether we have blatantly rejected God as Savior, Creator, Redeemer, Lover, Healer, Judge, and Lord. It's just saying, God, we, don't, we have no need for you. I don't care about you. If you did exist, I don't care. If you, if you don't exist, fine. I don't, and you completely reject God. Maybe, maybe you're there. Maybe you've been there. That's one side of rebellion. One side of rebellion can look really dark and perverse, openly rejecting God. It can be very irreligious. But there's another side to rebellion. There's a side of rebellion that looks very controlled, observant, moral, religious. See, we can rebel against God by openly rejecting him. 
We can rebel against God by trying to control God. We can openly reject God or we can try to control God. And this is how we try to control God. We do this by living a holy and good life so that God has to bless us. We go to church on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. when the sun is shining in San Francisco. And we're going, because God, I've given up my Sunday morning, you're going to have to bless me, right? I mean, I'm like, I'm going to church in San Francisco. That's got to count for something big. And we think because we do these things, God has to give us what we want. This is a form of control. This is actually a form of rebellion. There are going to be people in this city today on Folsom Street, openly rejecting God. And there can be people today in this very room who think because I do this and I don't do that, God must give me what I need, what I want, what I pray and I, what I ask for. Both of these are forms of rebellion. Let me just illustrate the latter really fast. Let me just illustrate this rebellion that looks like obedience. So you understand what I'm talking about. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher in London, once told a story. And he said, once upon a time, there was a, a man who was a gardener. And he grew this enormous carrot. And then he was proud of this carrot. He grew it and he was like, oh my gosh, this carrot is like enormous and beautiful. And he, and he took this carrot to the king. And he said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown in my life. And to be honest with you, King, I probably won't grow a better carrot than this. And so, I offer it to you. I give it to you as a gift out of my love for you and my respect for you. I present it as a token of my love. And the king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So he turned. When the man turned to go, the king said, stop, wait. You're clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to your land, and I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden all you like and have more land to garden. The gardener was absolutely amazed by this and went home rejoicing. Now, in the courtroom, there was a nobleman, and he was watching what was going on, and he was quite amazed too. And when he overheard all this, he thought, wow, if you can get that for a carrot, what will the king give me for something better than that? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, leading this beautiful black stallion. He bowed low and he said, my lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I've ever bred. I don't think I'll breed another one like this, and I give it to you. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. But the king discerned his heart, and the king just simply said, thank you, and dismissed him. And the nobleman was confused he stood there confused. So this is what the king said. He said, let me explain. That gardener yesterday was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. This is religion. We're going, we, we, we come to church not for God. We give our money not for God. We give our time. We serve not for God, but for what it gives us. Like, if I go to church, thing, if I, and we hear these teachings, like, if I give my money to God, he gives me more money back. That's a good investment. So I'll give $20 to God and see if he turns into 100 this week. That's why we give. That's giving to you. That's not giving to God. We do this with religion. There could be as, you can be as rebellious in these seats 
as in all the streets of San Francisco defying God. You could be just as rebellious, just same finger to God, saying, God, I don't need you to save me. I can save myself, and you owe me, God. This is what Paul calls transgression. This is what Paul calls rebellion. But he also uses this word sin. The etymology of the word sin comes from a term meaning missing the mark. It's like this archery term. Like you're aiming for a mark and you don't hit it. You sin. You miss the mark. Like I wasn't trying to miss the mark. I was trying to hit the mark, but I missed the mark. Yeah, I understand you were trying, but you don't get anything for trying. Like you missed the mark. There's a part of that in this word as well. See, not only do we rebel against God by religion or irreligion, from time, oh, time over time, time and time again, we know the right thing to do, but we don't do it. But look, at it look at it like this. If you took and compiled all the behaviors that, that every world religion asks and demand and urge upon humanity, there is basically universal agreement. We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to murder or rob or be unjust. We're to live by the golden rule. We're to be generous with our possessions. We're to show mercy. This is actually what C.S. Lewis does at the end of his book, The Abolition of Man. He compiles a series of sayings from all these different world religions that put these things on humanity, the things that humanity is to do. And he did this to show that when it comes to behaviors, there is total agreement about the way man should live. Everyone understands that we should live justly and generously and not murder or lie. There's universal consensus about this. Everyone thinks this. Everyone knows that we should live this way. And we could pretty much all of us agree that the main reason for all the misery in the world, all the problems in society, are because people don't live this way. Now, everyone agrees on what we should be doing. And if everyone agrees that the problems in our city, in our world, are the results of not doing it, what the heck is wrong with us? You know what you're supposed to do. You know what you're supposed to do to make your relationships work good? You know what you're supposed to do to make your job go well? But we don't do it. Over and over again, there's this thing in the human heart where we know exactly what is right to do, and we know the consequences for not doing it, and we do it anyway. No matter who's the president, no matter if we have a liberal government or a conservative government, no matter what trend is blowing through our nation, no matter what church we go to, no matter the philosophy that we hold to, if you're educated or not educated, the technology that's available to us, we do wrong anyway. And I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. You disobey your own conscience. Whatever law that you decided to live by, everyone has failed even their own standard. You know it. And you're going, okay, this is, how, this is who I want to, um, this is how I want my dating life to go. You've compromised. This is how I want my work-life balance to go. You've compromised. This is how I want my, my, my life to go, and you've compromised. This is how I want my New Year's resolution to go, and you've compromised. These are my morals. You've compromised them. No matter your moral, ethical code, if somewhere along the road you decided to live by the law of Moses, you, you just decided that. Or maybe the teachings of Jesus. Or maybe the convictions of society. Maybe you decided to recycle. You know you recycle wrong in the city. You know it. There are times you're like, oh, is that green or blue? I don't know. Like it had food in it, but I don't know if it goes in the blue. You know you've recycled wrong. You disobey your own conscience. So if you stood before God and God was like, listen, I'm not even going to hold you to my standard. 
I'm going to hold you to your standard. You withstand condemned. If God goes, I'm not even going to say the things I want you to do. I'm just going to put on you everything that you put on yourself. Your own morals, your own codes of ethic. All, and we'd go, oh, well, then I'm condemned. Because I break, I break that like every month. All of us stand, what Paul is saying, not only do we stand condemned by God, we stand self-condemned. This is why Paul says, everyone is equally spiritually dead. There are no degrees of deadness. There are not people walking around, and we think this though, people walking around like, they're good, all they need is just a little God push, a little God bump, that's it. They'd be the perfect person if just God was in their life. And then we see other people, they're like, they need a radical conversion. Radical. And God's like, actually, they're the same person. Like, you can't be really dead and just very nearly dead. You're dead. Paul says, we're all of us dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all equally dead. And because we're dead, we can do nothing about it. Just as a dead person can't do anything about their present situation. Sick people can at least do a little something. Dead people can do nothing. We are spiritually dead to the life of God and we can do nothing about it. So this is what Paul says. This is the way he writes it. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're living for the world. We're under satanic persuasion. We're taking natural desires of our bodies and perverting them because of all of this, God's wrath is upon us. God's wrath is upon us, he says. I'm like, wait, whoa, what do you mean God's, God's gonna, like, God's angry? Yeah, God's angry. Why is God angry? God has to do something about evil. And we choose evil over and over and over and over again. And God has to act. That's how bad it is. Then, the two greatest words in the Bible come next. Paul writes, this is how bleak it is. Then he says this in verse 4, but God. You're like, but God what? Like, you're under satanic rule. You are depraved. You are this. You are that. You are dead to everything. And then he says, but God. This is you? This is God. But God. He says, being rich in mercy. This should just come alive to us. Paul actually gets ahead of himself. He gets so stoked. Paul, Paul's writing, okay, and he's like, oh my gosh, this is us. We're dead in trespass and sin. Once we, went, we once walked, following the course of this world. He gets so excited. Then he goes, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and made life together with Christ, and he uses like this little M dash. He actually jumps to the end of his thing. He's like, okay, I can't wait. By grace, you've been saved. Okay, there it is. Okay, then he goes back into what he was saying before. He's like, couldn't even wait to get it out. See that little dash? He's like, okay, I'm going to give you a little taste. By grace, you've been saved. Okay, come back. And then he continues on. We're seated in the heavenlies of Christ. We're given all the riches of Christ. He took our place. We took his place. Then he finally, in verse 8, for by grace, you've been saved. It overwhelms him. What is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about the extravagance of mercy. God doesn't simply have mercy. It kind of seems like that here. He's rich in mercy. That means he has a lot of it. Actually, if you remember from Exodus 34, God is mercy. See, if God just had mercy, he can use it up. 
He's like, I was rich until Reality San Francisco started. And now I'm kind of, I'm on bank, I'm like, I'm running low. They need a lot of mercy at that church. So I'm kind of dealt it out. I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I got to be conservative with my mercy. That's not how it works. God is mercy. If it, if it was something he had, he can turn it off. It could become less. It could become more. But, sin, but since it's something God is, because it's uncreated, it never runs dry. A.W. Tozer said, the mercy of God is an infinite energy of God within his divine nature, which positions God to be actively compassionate. God's mercy comes at you in time of need. It doesn't stop. It's always there. It's there even in quantities that we could not even expect from God. It's this active energy that's always being pushed at us. What prompted God to act on our behalf was not something in us. See, God doesn't have to find something lovable in you to give you mercy. We do this with people. Like some of the people that we really don't like and we're angry at, we have to find something in them that we like. Like, okay, but I love their, their cooking. I love their eyes. I love their whatever it is. We have to find something in them that we like so we can keep liking them. God doesn't do that. This doesn't come from us. In us doesn't spark something like, oh, I'm going to love you now because you're so lovable. I'm going to give you mercy now because I can see something in you that you need. God is it's self-existent in his nature. He doesn't have to find something lovable in you to have compassion on you. This is both humbling and very, very exhilarating. And the mercy of God is not a mood. He's not capricious. This is not a temporary attribute of God that he gets on Friday night around happy hour. It's like, ooh, I feel really good right now. Who can I give mercy to? This is always God. And you can count on the mercy of God no matter how guilty you feel. See, the difference between last week's attribute and this week's attribute is this. Judgment is God's justice confronting moral injustice. Judgment is God's justice confronting moral injustice. Mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Mercy is God's goodness, and it confronts our suffering, and it confronts our guilt, where Pain is felt and guilt is felt and tears and misery in us. It calls forth this divine attribute of God and he pours it out on us. And it never stops. To receive God's mercy, we just got to know that God is merciful. And we must believe that God's mercy is boundless. It's free. It's available in our present situation. Now, how is this possible? This is what I call the scandal of grace. And it is a scandal. It's a scandal because you don't deserve it. It's a scandal because I don't deserve it. Mercy, I can see mercy. I can see how we can feel so bad about our sin. God's like, okay, your sin's forgiven. You had a debt, and I zeroed it out. You're free. Now go make of your life what you will with the zero balance, with being debt-free. I can see that a little bit, but grace is scandalous. Grace is unfair. Grace is so weird that, that the New Testament sometimes, the gospel is sometimes hard to read. Jesus is going around just going, grace, 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 grace. Hey, woman, does anyone condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sit no more. You're like, oh my gosh. How does he do that? 
Pharisees hated him. That's actually why he was crucified. Like, you can't go around dispensing the grace of God that way. They've done nothing to deserve it. They actually have to go through channels to get to the grace of God. You've got to sacrifice this and that and this and pray the thing and go in there and slice this in half and offer that to God. You can't just go around just giving people the grace of God. This is why the grace of God is scandalous. A.W. Tozer, in The Knowledge of the Holy, says, In God, mercy and grace are one. But as they reach us, they're seen as two, related but not identical. So God's grace and mercy are one, but when they reach us, they're actually two different things. They, re- they relate to each other, but they're not identical to each other. See, this is why. Mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt. Grace is God's goodness directed toward human debt and failure. Said differently, mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve punishment, separation from God forever. Mercy is like, you will, you will not get judgment. I clear your account. You were negative 800 bucks, zero. You're free. You're like, oh, thank you. But grace is getting what we do not deserve. Grace is going, I have a debt. I can't pay it. God's like, zero count. You're like, thank you. He's like, oh, by the way, seven trillion. You're like, what? <laughs> seven trillion, yeah, seven trillion dollars in your account. Like, no, no, no. That, that doesn't make sense. It's like, I, don't, I didn't do anything. It's transferred into your account. All of the righteousness, the goodness, the beauty of Christ in our account. You've done nothing, nothing. You were dead, by the way. What, what did have dead people do? Nothing. You didn't go, I'm dead, but then I realized I needed Christ, and so I went to Christ and go, Christ, I need you. You did nothing. You laid there. And Christ spoke over you mercy and spoke over you grace. That's why it's so scandalous. You're going, but I, I have to have faith. Yeah, you, you do have to have faith. But even here it says, faith, it's not even from yourself. Trip out on that. Like, I have faith. God's like, yeah, I gave, it to you. I gave you faith. Like, you even gave me faith? Like, you even gave me the faith to believe in you? This is... You're, is everything from you and for you? You're, he's like, yeah, now you're starting to get it. This is, this is grace. And this is why I say it's a scandal. One of the most popular and best illustrations of this, of the scandal of grace, is in the book Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. You may be very familiar with this. Most of the time when a writer or a movie tries to depict grace, it's so artistic that no one gets it. Like you're watching Ter- Terrence Malick's like Tree of Life, you're like, was that scene about grace or about dinosaurs? Like, what, is, what was going on there? Like, I saw a tree, and then she was said grace, and she said nature, but was it about? Like, what it, like it's so out there. You're like, but this, you can, get, you can get a hold of. You may be familiar with this story. The main character, Jean Valjean, is unjustly set to prison as a young man. This obviously changes Valjean into a bitter, hardened man that when he gets out of prison, he actually becomes a criminal. And the story picks up, the action of the of this story picks up at dusk on a cold October evening. Valjean, who's recently released from prison, he seeks refuge in this small town. And he goes door to door to door to try to find somewhere to sleep that night. And just like Mary and Joseph, there's no room in any inn. There's room, but they won't let him have it because on his passport is stamped this yellow stamp that says he's a criminal. And everybody knows he's a criminal. And nobody will give him a room. So he goes door to door to door to door. Can I sleep here? Can I sleep here? And everybody says no. Everyone denies him. And after knocking on every door, 
but the church's door. Valjean prepares to sleep on a stone bench in the bitter cold. Just then, the church door opens, and out comes this elderly woman. And this elderly woman says to Valjean, knock on one more door. And it was this door of a small house. And when Valjean knocks on this door, he's warmly invited in to supper and given a bed fitted with clean sheets. Completely surprised, Valjean says, you mean you're not chasing me away? I'm going to have supper? I get a bed with a mattress and sheets? I haven't slept in a bed for 19 years. Pardon me, he says. What's your name? Are you the innkeeper? You must be the innkeeper. The host was a local Catholic bishop, a very hospitable old man, and he says this to Valjean. This is not my house. It's the house of Jesus Christ. And within this humble little refuge, there are these silver candlesticks that burn in the background, a kind of menorah symbolizing the presence of God in this small, holy place. But when the bishop goes to bed, Valjean gets up, returns to his thieving ways, steals all the silverware in the house. By the way, it was real silver, not like our stuff today, like real silver. Steals all the silverware, puts it in a bag, and he runs away. But the police catch him and bring him back to the bishop. And they say to the bishop, we caught a thief, and he has your silverware. The bishop walks up to Valjean and stands before Valjean, and to Valjean's amazement, he looks at Valjean and he says to the police, no, you're mistaken. I gave him the silverware. But you forgot something, Valjean. I also gave you the silver candlesticks too, and those are worth a lot of money. Why didn't you take those as well? And he grabs Valjean's bag from the police, grabs the silver candlesticks and stuffs them in his bag. Valjean looks up going, what? He's never been confronted by grace before, ever. He's in chains. He deserves to be thrown in prison again. He stole from a bishop. The police leave. Valjean is confronted maybe for the very first time with amazing grace, scandalous grace. And the bishop says, Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdrew it from your black thoughts and your spirit of perdition, and I gave it to God. This is scandalous grace. This is the best illustration of grace. You and I are criminals. You and I have stolen from God, taken our lives in our own hand, given God the finger, whether it's outward rebellion or like this religious sort of rebellion. We've missed the mark. We've sinned even by our own standards. And we deserve prison. We deserve separation. And Christ doesn't just free us. He didn't just say, you know, I'm not going to hold that against you. He then takes the silver and he pours it into our account. That's a scandal. There's actually some, when you're reading the book or watching the the play, you're kind of like going, but the bishop's lying. (laughs) That's how scandalous grace is. You're like, but you can't do that. The bishop's like, you have to suspend something to show grace. You have to like suspend truth to show grace. And this is what we think about God. God has to just like 
hold back justice to show grace. Hold back wrath to show grace. No, he doesn't. He satisfies justice and satisfies his wrath by taking our place. This is actually how Valjean's changed and ends up showing this sort of exact same substitutionary grace later on in the play. J.R. Packer said, it's the dramatic transition from the status of a condemned criminal awaiting a terrible sentence to that of an heir waiting a fabulous inheritance. The grace of God is free, but it costs Christ everything. We get Christ's righteousness, but he took our punishment. We are united to him by grace, but he was united to us in God's justice. He took our place. That's what makes this so scandalous. You're Jean Valjean. You're Barabbas. We're that wicked, that grimy, wicked criminal standing next to Jesus. Jesus is beautiful, pure, without sin. And we're like this criminal standing next to him that's done all these things. And who gets to go free? Barabbas. Who goes to the cross? Jesus. Grace is free, but it costs God everything. And this grace changes everything. The grace of God is what like, makes the chains of religion fall away, the chains of irreligion fall away, the pressure of doing everything right, that, that sort of sin talk that we just did, that missing the mark. You might go, yes, I hate when I miss the mark. I'm so OCD when I just, I have to get it right, perfect every time. God, he can free you from that. John, John Bunyan wrote in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he said, one day I was passing into the field. The sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, with all, I saw with my eyes, the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For, for that was just in front of him all the while. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good fame of, frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was in Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. What broke those chains? Those chains of, of pressure of having to do everything right or those, anything I do. This is the scandal. Anything I do, I'm righteous before God. Because my righteousness is not found in what I do. It's found in what Christ has done. That church is scandalous. So are you saying that I trust in Christ and I can do whatever I want and I'm still righteous before God? Yes. And I say that with like kind of trepidation. I'm like, well, don't do things though, please. <laughs> But that's what it means. It is go and sin no more, but you realize that your righteousness is found in Christ. That's the scandalous grace of God. 
And what does this grace do? It brings salvation. That's the effect. That's what Paul gets at. By grace, we've been saved. In Titus, he writes, the grace of God brings salvation. And this is what it looks like in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That word is poema. That word means, you've probably heard this. If you haven't, just take it in. That word means you are God's work of art. I'm not trying to get emo. Just being truthful. You are God's masterpiece. That's what that word means. And then it says created. Notice it says created. You know why it's created? That it actually has this, this implications of recreation. Because you were dead. You were dead and you needed a new life. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And now, in Christ, you are a workmanship. You are a poem. You are a masterpiece created by Jesus Christ. And the masterpiece that you and I are, are the kind, it's a kind of painting that doesn't, that doesn't focus on the, the painting, but the painter. Like, no one looks at Mona Lisa and is like, she was a fox. Because no one says that. They look at that and they're like, not who is that girl, but who is the painter? The masterpiece that you and I are, because of the grace of God, points to God. Like, who did this? It was God. What Paul is writing here is we are by nature in a state of utter lostness and God, our merciful and gracious Savior, shows us grace and bids us come to him. As Isaac Watts put in this poem, but there's a voice of princely grace, sounds from God's holy word. Ho ye poor captive sinners, come. And trust upon the Lord. My soul obeys the sovereign call and runs to this relief. I would believe thy promise, Lord. Oh, help my unbelief. To the blessed fountain of thy blood, incarnate God, I fly. To wash my soul from scarlet stains and sins of deepest dye. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm, into thy hands I fall. Thou art the Lord, my righteousness, my Savior, and my all. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your marvelous grace. It's such a, a scandal to us that it's hard to even wrap our minds around it, but I know that we can experience it this morning. We can experience the grace of God. And I pray that we would today. As we, as we turn, maybe for the... I know there's people in here that, that need to be saved. Saved in that old word that we find in this text in Ephesians. By grace, we've been saved. Saved people this morning from their dead spirituality, from their irreligion, from their religion, from themselves. Pour on us, like we read about Valjean or Barabbas, pour upon us grace that not just clears us from our guilt, but transfers to our account the riches of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.